The Lord be with you. And also with you. The Almighty God lives as three in one and one in three, and forever reigns in the perfect unity of love. Good morning and welcome to Marsh Chapel, where the heart of the city reaches out to the heart of the country. We welcome you, whether you are joining us in person at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, via the radio at 90.9 FM WBUR, or online at WBUR.org. No matter where you are and where you are coming from, we are delighted to worship God together with you. Our Dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, sends his greetings as he is away keeping his summer sabbatical. A full schedule of his summer teaching and preaching can be found in the bulletin as he brings the voice of Marsh Chapel around the country. This morning, we welcome back to the pulpit Chaplain Jessica Chica, who serves as the University Chaplain for International Students. She brings us a word on grace, love, and communion. And now let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servant's grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. John Wesley exhorted us to be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. As the choir leads us in our traditional Kyrie, we take a moment to pause and reflect on the ways in which we have not been rigorous with ourselves and the ways in which we have failed to be generous and gracious to others. Beloved, hear the good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. For this reading, I invite you to join me in numbering the days of creation aloud. You will find the scripture text in your bulletin, and the line for each day begins... And there was evening, and there was morning, and then the number of the day. So when we come to that part, please join in. There are six days that we'll talk about. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 4. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome, and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. 
and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 8 with the antiphon. sovereign how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens when I look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars that you have established Yet you have made them a little lower than God, and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas.
Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the singing of the gospel, or the reading of the gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Go, therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Good morning. It is truly wonderful to be speaking again from the pulpit of Marsh Chapel today. My thanks to Dean Hill for making this opportunity available to me and to my colleagues here at the chapel for their support in leading worship this morning. Imagine my pleasure when I discovered that the first reading from the Hebrew Bible for the lectionary this week was the first creation account in Genesis. It also happens to be the longest lectionary reading, and thank you for your patience and participation. (laughs) As someone who studies environmental and ecological ethics, this is a perfect starting off point for a sermon. Themes of dominion versus stewardship, our understanding of ourselves as a part of the creation and not separate from it, and the world having inherent value because of God's care in creating it, are all found in this one passage. And they're often upheld by Christian ecological theologians and ethicists as justifications for why Christians should seek justice for the earth. So, easy for me. Slam dunk. This sermon could be written in an hour. But instead, I'm choosing to go on a path that has many hills and obstacles instead of a clear one, because it builds character. Today is Trinity Sunday, which celebrates the threefold nature of God. Theologically, the Trinity continues to be one of the most challenging aspects of Christianity to fully grasp. Martin Luther infamously stated that to try to deny the Trinity endangers your salvation, to try to comprehend the Trinity endangers your sanity. Similarly, John Wesley stated, bring me a worm that can comprehend a human being, and then I will show you a human being that can comprehend the triune God. There are many similar warnings from many theologians about the dangers and limits in human comprehension of one of the central claims to our belief system. So let me start by saying I do not fully understand the Trinity, and this sermon is not meant as an attempt at that. When we talk about the Trinity with a capital T, we are usually referring to God in three persons or types, historically delineated as God the Father, God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one. The Christian math of one plus one plus one equals one. It's found all over our liturgy. We've said it several times today. Disagreements about the nature of the Trinity go back to the 4th century when the church fathers tried to define whether Jesus was divine or not, as well as establish the official doctrine of the Trinity. For more information, you can see the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, from which we get the Nicene Creed professed in some mainline Protestant denominations to this day. The entire church has split over understandings of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. 
As Luther and Wesley have rightly pointed out, the Trinity continues to be a mystery to human beings. We can never fully comprehend it. But that does not mean we cannot try to understand, understand aspects of the Trinity and of our God. Instead of using the typical formulation which we find in Matthew today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am more interested in the threefold description of God that Paul uses in the closing to the second letter to the Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A commentary on this passage that I read in preparation for this sermon referred to Paul's formulation as a, quote, faintly Trinitarian, as faintly Trinitarian with a small t. Formal orthodoxy about the Trinity with a big T wouldn't come until hundreds of years after this epistle was written. While Paul's use of grace, love, and communion would most assuredly inform the later formal doctrine, he would most likely not have referred to himself as a Trinitarian, even if he does split God into three separate entities in this passage. Instead, what we can take from this passage is one way to express three foundational aspects of understanding how God and human beings relate to one another. Paul's formulation of the grace, love, and communion found in the divine may ring familiar to some of you, as it does for me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Growing up in the Lutheran Church, this scripture passage was and is still used as the greeting at each service. In fact, while I was preparing for this sermon, Brother Larry commented on how Lutheran my title is, Grace, Love, Communion, which isn't surprising given Luther's particular fondness for Paul's epistles. Used in the context of a worship service, grace, love, and, community, and communion serve as a welcome and opportunity for us to come together as one to praise God. But we can take these words for granted. Just like in any relationship, we have to be attentive to keep it healthy. And now, when we find ourselves in deeply troubling and divisive times, perhaps it is more imperative than ever to remind ourselves what lies at the core of our Christian teachings. You'll notice that in the reading of 2 Corinthians, we heard today Paul is ending his letter to the church in Corinth, not beginning with this greeting. Paul writes to the Corinthians after finding out that there have been crises in the church that have created division between the people in Corinth. His letter is meant as encouragement for the church to continue to move forward in reconciliation. Scholars believe that Paul sent another letter in between the epistles that we have come to know as 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in which he admonished them for their behavior and was very harsh with them. He actually states as much in 2nd Corinthians itself. The church in Corinth turned itself around to serve God and be in community with one another. One of Paul's means of encouragement is to remind them that their strength and their power comes from the ultimate source, God. In verse 5 of chapter 13, just before the passage we read today, Paul inquires, examine yourselves. Are you living the life of faith? This entreaty is not just to scold the Christians in Corinth to do better, but also to recognize the fundamental reality that God resides with us in all that we do, and by acting faithfully, we affirm our commitment to God. Then in closing, he cites grace, love, and communion as expressions of this faithful relationship. If we are to ask ourselves the question, are we living a life of faith, what would our answer be? What does it mean to live a life of faith? Grace, love, and communion are all interrelated concepts, just as the relationship found in the Trinity is interrelational. They inform and help to shed light on one another. So I invite us to explore together the ideas of grace, love, and communion a bit more to try to understand how we live a life of faith together and can be better disciples of Christ in the world. One thing that we must fundamentally understand about our Christian identity is that it is relational. God, as source of all, maintains a relationship with the world and humanity. 
Our reading from Genesis for today is not out of place with the other readings. It demonstrates a gracious God who creates and proclaims a world that is inherently good. It also places God as the source of all that we can rely on when times get tough. For Protestants, the grace extended by God is an essential part of our relationship with God. God freely gives grace to humanity. Grace is a gift from God given through Jesus Christ. Charis, the Greek word for grace, implies a gift freely given, even undeserved by those who receive it. As a Lutheran, my understanding of grace is that we do not deserve it, but that God actively extends it to us if we have faith. This is where the idea of justification by faith, or sola fides, comes from in our Protestant traditions. Good works are not required in order to receive God's grace, but good works come out of, faith, out of that faith and grace that we receive. For most, most Protestants, this understanding of grace is central to our theological interpretations of the divine-human relationship. Why should we bother to do anything good then? If God's grace is given to us freely no matter what, then shouldn't we just anticipate that it will be given to us? The answer is no, of course, because faith is still required of us. Faith is the dynamic actor on the side of humanity in the divine human relationship. Out of faith grows our sense of responsibility for others, for creation, and for ourselves. If we turn back to, the, to our scripture from Genesis for today, God creates all good things and finds the creation to be very good, but gives responsibility to human beings to be stewards of that creation. Although our reading used the words subdue and dominion when discussing the human relationship with earth, a more correct understanding is our care and stewardship of that which is ultimately God's, not ours, and that which God finds to be good outside of our use for it. This flies in the face of claims that we might hear from some Christians today who say things like, if there is such a thing as climate change— and this is an aside, newsflash, there is such a thing as climate change, God will take care of it for us. To believe such a thing abdicates us from our responsibilities and partnership with God and others. And this brings me to our second, the second of our relational identities with God, love. Love, agape, is how we interact with others. The love expressed by God through Jesus is understood to be self-giving, seeking out the needs of the neighbor. Love is our duty to one another, to serve and to meet the needs of those around us. Again, referring to love, Luther reminds us that faith and love are intertwined with one another. Love is a consequence of faith. It is how we express our faith to others and in the world around us. There is a direct relationship between grace, faith, and love. We are set free by the grace of God to love and do the work of God with our hands. And that love is not limited in scope. We must love our neighbors and also love our enemies. Surely hating what is evil is also proclaimed in the scriptures, and we must continue to resist ideologies that are damaging to those who are most in need. But the challenge for us is to try to find common ground with those who see things differently than us. As I said before, this is a deeply divisive time in our country. Recently, Elizabeth Eaton, the presiding bishop of the ELCA, wrote a column in Living Lutheran, which is the monthly ELCA magazine, entitled Serving the Neighbor in Charged Times. In it, she reminds Lutherans of their call to be in service to others, no matter who they are, and that in order to do it, we must be civically engaged. She states, We forget that we are one people. I think we fail to recognize Christ in others, whether the other is across the pew or across the world. We forget that we all, whatever our politics, 
stand under the judgment of God and that only God's promise of reconciling love in Jesus can save us. Set free by that promise, we can find a way to serve the neighbor. Aided by echo chambers of media outlets and social media accounts, we can easily find people who agree with us and reject or block or unfriend those who don't. We can forget that those who hold beliefs that differ from us are still people. Extending love does not mean that we necessarily have to agree with those who hold different beliefs than our own, but we must remember that our need to be in service to others outweighs political affiliation, race, religious identity, sexual orientation, or gender. True kindness and compassion should be our guiding light. It is often in moments in tragedy and extreme strain that we see the walls that divide us come down. We saw it a few weeks ago in Manchester, as people offered their homes to complete strangers, and as, as others lined up around the corner to donate blood for those who were injured. We saw it a year ago this weekend, when over 50 people were murdered at Pulse nightclub in Orlando during Pride, and a great outpouring of care and support came from people all over the United States and the world. We saw it in Boston four years ago as we proudly proclaimed Boston strong after the events surrounding the Boston Marathon bombing. But mo must we wait until tragedy strikes to show our support for others? Can we be reliable neighbors every day for those we often fail to recognize who need our help the most? What does it mean to be in a community with others and to share in God's love. This brings us to the last of the attributes Paul assigns to God. Communion, koinonia, a fellowship or gathering. Christianity is not a solitary endeavor. In order to be relational, we must interact with others. It's the very definition of the word. We come together in worship to hear the scripture together and to praise God, but we also come together in many other ways to live out our Christian witness. We commonly think of communion in terms of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper that we share together during worship. We share in the sacrament with each other and with God at the same time in a very obvious way. But communion and fellowship can be expressed in so many other ways. Obviously, food is a great way to bring people together. During the school year, Marsh Chapel offers many opportunities for chapter members, students, and faculty to come together over a meal. I host Global Dinner Club every week. This space encourages students to not only learn some much-needed cooking skills for when they are on, on their own after college, but also gives us opportunity to find places of commonality or even difference in our backgrounds. Undergraduate and graduate students, people of faith and people of no faith, domestic and international, gather in preparing food, eating, and having conversation. We've talked about everything from television shows to the finer nuances of process theology during these dinners. And everyone walks away learning something new, like the history of the great molasses flood in Boston, and more importantly, how to build bonds with other people. I think we can all recognize that inexpressible feeling that develops when a group of people comes together. I like to think that that feeling, that connection that we share with each other, is God. God is experienced through faith, through grace, through love, and in communion with others. Now, some communities we get to voluntarily choose. For example, what church we attend, or the friends that we keep close. Others we have less of a choice in, our families, our neighbors, and our school or work colleagues. Even the ecosystems that we live in, 
But, when, but whether our communities are self-selected or not, we have the opportunity in all cases to try to learn a little more about one another and to share with one another. Our community as a Christian congregation is important, to be sure, but we are not only in Christian contexts. We can bring our faith and our values to these other communities by practicing the love that God enables us to share with one another. When Jesus sends the disciples to go out and make disciples in all nations, to form a worldwide community of people of faith, it is through the word and baptism but I would also say it is through the actions of those whom he sends that disciples are made. Our faith informs our actions, and those actions make an impression on the world around us. Grace, love, and communion. As a welcoming wish at the start of a worship service, or the departing words of a letter written nearly 2,000 years ago, The Christian message is delivered through these three interrelated concepts. Our challenge now is to go out into the world and live into them as fully as we can to be disciples of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We come now to a time of prayer in the service. I invite you to assume a posture of prayer that best allows you to support the prayers of the community. Remain seated, stand, kneel, or come to the altar rail as the choir leads us in the call to prayer. Lead me, Lord.
Today's prayer is adapted from the writings of the Right Reverend Gerilyn Wolfe, Episcopal Bishop. Let us pray. Gracious God, who knit our inmost parts before we were born, and who shelters us with a strong hand, in gratitude receive the prayers we offer as we respond to each petition by saying, Kyrie eleison. In thanksgiving for the unity we share through our death and resurrection in Jesus Christ, that we who have been entrusted with the gift of new life may bring life to the world and renewed hope to our church. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the courage to hold fast to the high ideals of our calling, bringing the lamp of charity to those who live in despair and desperation, and through through their cries receive the saving grace that enlightens our ministry. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For a renewed sense of the body of Christ, the church, that together with our bishops, church leaders, and all ministers, we may rededicate ourselves in the unity of the triune God. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the urgency to seek peace before the battle breaks, and economic justice before the weight of poverty fractures the will of nations. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the forgiveness of our sins, that the wounds that we inflict on one another in the name of righteousness may be healed by the divine life that overcomes human frailty. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For those whose lives are approaching death, and for those who have died, especially those we remember in our hearts now, that they and their loved ones may receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. We pray these things in the name of Christ, who baptized us with fire and water and called us to be a baptizing community. And now we are bold to pray in the words Jesus taught his early disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Marsh Chapel. Whether you join us here in the nave at 735 Commonwealth Avenue by radio airwaves at 90.9 WBUR or via the podcast, we are glad you are with us for a moment of pause, rest, and worship.
As we strive to be a service in the service of the city, Boston, and a heart in the heart of the city, know that you are welcome here. Immigrant, refugee, or eighth-generation New Englander, black, brown, white, gay, straight, bi, trans, or something else, or simply not sure, you are welcome here. Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, Independent, you are most certainly welcome here. We on the staff want to get to know you better and help you get to know one another better. If you're in the nave, take a moment to find a red pad at the end of your pew, add your name to it and pass it along the pew, and learn the name of your neighbor and greet them by name after the service today, perhaps over coffee hour downstairs. If you listen from afar, send us an email at chapel at bu.edu or call the office at 617-353-3560. Let us know who you are and let us help us connect you more broadly with the community. I offer a few brief announcements this morning. During these summer months, the chapel operates on an abbreviated programming schedule as students, faculty, and staff enjoy a few weeks of respite. Nevertheless, we are here every morning at 11, every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., with coffee hour following and potluck luncheons on first Sundays. Next Sunday, there will also be a Father's Day brunch before the service, beginning at 9.30 a.m. And on Sunday, June 25th, the dean and Jan will offer a brief vacation Bible school program for children from noon to 1.30, titled Pizza and Psalms. As always, there is free childcare during the 11 a.m. service and free parking for the service behind the College of Arts and Sciences building. For other announcements and information about the chapel, please see the chapel website at www.bu.edu chapel. There you will find a full sermon preaching schedule, full summer sermon preaching schedule, uh, which is also printed in today's bulletin. And there's also the opportunity for online giving to support the work of this community. And now as the ushers wait upon those in the nave, I invite you to remember that it is both a gift and a discipline to be a giver.
Triune God, in response to the love you have shown us by creating, redeeming, and sustaining us, we offer these our tithes and offerings. Bless them that they might serve you by serving others, and bless us to do the same. We pray these things reliant upon your grace, love, and communion. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace and serve the living God. <laughs>